Hello and welcome to another episode of the County Cricket Podcast in association with our friends at Bear Crickets. I'm your host Aaron aka the Cricket Connoisseur and joining me on my left for today's very special episode of TCCP is none other than Kent's and former Nottinghamshire opener Ben Compton. So Ben, first things first mate, thank you very much for joining me here on the podcast today. It's an absolute pleasure to welcome you on for a chat about all things county crickets. I have to ask, mate, how has your day been so far? Thanks, mate. Thank you for having me on. Um, I'll be completely honest. My day's actually been a challenging one. I had a burst pipe in my shower this morning, so <laughs> there was actually water flooding my bathroom and a scramble to find a plumber. Um, you know, but <laughs> apart from that, everything's fine, mate. And thank you for having me on. I've got to be honest, Ben, we're 205, 206 episodes into the podcast. I think that is the most unique introduction we've ever had. You had a leaked pipe and your house flooded. (laughs) Something like that, yeah. Um, Yeah, not what you want, but these things happen and um, and here we are. We are indeed, and and fingers crossed I'll be able to to lift the spirits up ever so slightly with today's podcast recording. And of course, on the day that we are recording this, which is the 10th of November, we have been treated to an absolute masterclass in T20 batting from Alex Hales and Joss Butler. England are in the final of the T20 World Cup. We beat India by 10 wickets in a very one-sided affair in Adelaide. So, Ben, before we get into your cricketing journey, first and foremost, what did you make of that performance from the three Lions? Um, well, I mean, it's pretty phenomenal. I mean, it doesn't, doesn't take a rocket scientist to view that as a completely um dominant performance from england and um yeah i mean it was fantastic they bowled beautifully up top didn't they um and that really set the tone and you know hales and butler just they just it was a completely um one-sided affair on the batting front when we were batting um so credit to them i think that's a fantastic performance under an immense amount of pressure against a strong probably india probably you know one of the strongest teams um and that comes with all the sorts of challenges semi-final massive game so um you know huge credit to them and um, i'm sure they'll be celebrating properly (laughs) well hopefully not celebrating too much just yet because in the words of the great kobe bryant's job's not finished we've still got one more we've got one more game in melbourne at the mcg against pakistan who play some phenomenal incredibly electrifying cricket so that should be a great final and great news for us as england fans it's on Channel 4. It's on free to air as well. So that's a bonus, isn't it? Yeah, and I'm actually I'm actually really happy for, for Pakistan. I've always um, sort of felt strongly about, uh, you know, they love their cricket. And obviously with a tough sort of history, not being able to host cricket in their home nation for, for ages. Um, I've always been happy when they've done well. Um, just seeing the passion they bring, the how they... Um, you know, carry themselves on the field. And they've got some outstanding cricketers, you know. You've seen guys like Barbara Azam, Rizwan, Afridi really step up and take the mantle for their and drive their cricket forward over the last few years. So I'm really happy for them. I'm actually glad Pakistan are in there with England. You know, I think it'll be a fantastic final. It will indeed. And obviously for us as England fans, we do want the three lines to win. But if we just take the, the England hat off for a second, what a prospect that is. England have been one of the most consistent, reliable, powerful sides in T20i cricket for the past five, six years now. 
in that final against a Pakistan team who on their day, as I mentioned, they're just so exciting. They bring so much passion, so much fire, so much excitement to the game. It's going to be a spectacle at the MCG. And fingers crossed, England can get the job done, eh, Ben? Absolutely, mate. Fingers crossed. We'll see what we get on the day. It's, it'll be um, no point speculating now. We'll just have to wait and see what happens. But um, I think England would be favourites if you're a betting man. But, you know, as you say, Pakistan are just, uh, just a very dangerous side, you know, on their day, like you were mentioning. They can do anything. They can beat any team. So it really is going to be a fantastic final. It is indeed. And not to sound too cliche on today's podcast, but may the best team win. England yeah. or Pakistan, very, very deserving winners, no matter who wins it. Pakistan coming back from that loss against India in the first match. And then, of course, that loss to Zimbabwe. And England have just been so reliable, consistent throughout. Aside from the little blip against Ireland, honestly, either of those two sides, incredibly worthy winners, to say the least. But Ben, we aren't just here to discuss the T20 World Cup today. No, instead, we're here to discuss your incredible cricketing journey. And for the for the new listeners out there who don't quite know how the podcast works, essentially, I'm going to be talking to Ben today about his early cricketing journey. Then a large chunk of the podcast will, of course, revolve around his time in the county circuits with the likes of Knotts and Kent. And then we shall end today's episode with a look ahead to the future, looking at future aspirations and ambitions in the wonderful game that we call cricket. But Ben, before we jump the gun, we get too far ahead of ourselves and talk about the future. I want to take it all the way back to the origins of your cricketing journey, if I may. So what were your first ever memories of cricket, either playing or watching this sensational game? Um, well, I think to put a bit of context behind it, I think um, obviously cricket's been a very prominent uh, kind of feature in my family, um, both going back and the very present family. You know, my dad is a cricket writer. Um, he was a cricket writer for one of the major South African papers. Um, and cricket was always kind of a part of, you know, everyday life, whether it be talking about it, watching it, playing it in the back garden. Um, so I guess I probably started very early on. I, I couldn't really tell you the exact one. I was probably playing tennis ball cricket in the backyard and, um, you know, getting my dad to throw to me for hours and stuff like that. But um, I suppose more formally, it would probably be like what we, you know, the summer camp type equivalents in England, you know, when I was about eight or nine, probably running around trying to just smoke the smoke the tennis ball all over the shop. So um, that was probably cricket. I actually played tennis more than cricket until I was about 15, 14, 15. Um, so that was actually the sport I took up first. Um, and then as time went on, I sort of became more keen on cricket and realised I wanted to drive that forward. That's interesting you say that. Before we talk yeah. about the the familial link and the pedigree associated with your family surname, Ben, I just want to ask about that, actually. What what made you make the switch then from tennis to cricket? What was it about cricket which you found more appealing, per se? So if I really think about it, it was an accumulation of things. Um, I probably had certain things fall into place uh which which helped that decision you know i think a very close friend of mine growing up is a fantastic cricketer and i kind of wanted a uh sort of friendly in a friendly manner kind of compete with him you know i didn't i didn't want him being the best cricketer at school, school so. 
<laughs> so I tried to sort of, you know, keep up and, um, you know, obviously I, I looked at when I probably was about 14 or 15, I, um, my cousin was probably quite a big influence on me without really spending a huge amount of time with him. He was in England playing um, and I was still a schoolboy growing up in South Africa. And um, I sort of realized then that around 14, I wanted to try and become a, a professional cricketer in England. And that's what I wanted to try and do with my life. Um, so I think since then, I, I made quite a strong decision that that's what I wanted to do. Um, and it all came around 14, I suppose. Well, fair enough. And thankfully for the Kent fans out there, that decision has definitely paid off, as we shall discuss in due course. But in those early days, aside from that family link, right, which of course does weigh heavy on the shoulders, and we'll discuss that in a lot more detail in just a second. But in terms of domestic or international cricket, did you have any role models, any influences, any idols per se, in those early years that you tried to mould and shape your game around? I did actually, and the answer might surprise you. Um, but when I was about 11 or 12, those formative cricketing years, you know, when you're a young player and you just love playing cricket, I actually love watching watching Herschel Gibbs. Now, you could not find a guy who I bat more completely opposite to. <laughs> but um, I actually loved watching Herschel Gibbs. I just thought he's almost ahead of his time in a way, you know, if you think about cricket now um, and how guys play. Um, Gibbs was just fantastic to watch, you know, and I don't know, the real cricket fans will remember that 175 he scored against Australia in that 4-3-4 game. Um, you know, that was a pretty special, pretty special game. And I actually loved watching him growing up. And then they, as, I, as the years rolled on, I sort of started to, that started to change in terms of uh, role models in cricket. I looked at guys like Strauss and Cook. I really enjoyed watching them. Strauss particularly, you know, strong cutter, puller, um, just really sort of, um, attributes that I enjoyed seeing played at a high standard, you know, and um, um, so Cook and Strauss were up there, and um, as as I've already mentioned, Nick was probably up there in terms of, um, you know, I sort of looked at him and thought, you know, I'd, I'd quite like a piece of that, you know, come and play county cricket in England and, and see where that takes me. And the rest is history, as uh. they say. I've got to be completely honest, Ben, I was not expecting Herschel Gibbs, but that is a wonderful shout, and Funny enough, in my first ever cricket game that I watched live at Edgebaston, it was Warwickshire yeah. versus Glamorgan in the CB40. Warwickshire didn't even bat. It was terribly rain-affected. There's about 17 overs. But I, I distinctly remember Glamorgan's opener for being very expansive, very powerful, yeah. very hard-hitting, hit some lovely shots in that game. And I kid you not, for the best part of a decade, I didn't know who it was. Right? Oh, really? I searched up on Google, went on the Crick Info scorecard. Who was it? Herschel Gibbs, and then it all made sense. <laughs> Everything slotted into place, and suddenly the world seemed as though it made sense. So, great shout there. And in terms of those three cricketers, before we talk about Nick, we talk about your familial legacy and pedigree. This is going to be a tough question, Ben. But let's say that you could have a podcast with Herschel Gibbs, mm. Andrew Strauss, or Sir Alistair Cook. <laughs> Who would you choose? And well, I, I don't know. I'd probably choose Cook, to be honest. I think... Um reason I say that I've had the privilege of playing a couple of times against him now and um, just got a got a little snapshot of what he's like as a man he's a very personable guy and you know really happy to come and speak to you and he's um, certainly he's got this wonderful ability from the very few experiences I've had with him he's got this wonderful ability to um, speak to you quite sort of 
um, levelly, if that makes sense, like a man-to-man type thing. And you don't realise that you're necessarily speaking to, you know, Sir Alistair Cook, who's the leading all-time run scorer for England. Um, so I think that speaks volumes for him as a character and um, as a man. So I'd probably choose him, mate. I like that choice. Just the 12,472 test runs to Sir Alistair Cook's name, as you mentioned, England's leading all-time test run scorer, fifth overall in the all-time standings. What a man. Chef, if you're listening as well, always welcome here on the County Cricket Podcast. On the off chance that he's listening, we'd love to have you on. But Ben, we've alluded to this throughout the podcast so far, and that is, of course, your surname, because cricket fans across the globe will think of your surname, Compton, and immediately they think of one man, the great Dennis Compton, one of England's most legendary players, over 5,000 test runs, an average of 50.06, a titan of English cricket. And I wanted to ask this, and this is quite a, a prevalence or profound question, I suppose, but has that family surname ever weighed heavy on your shoulders? Have you ever felt a little bit more under pressure in comparison to teammates or other players necessarily as results of that cricketing heritage? I think that proves I'm very much the runt of the litter uh, <laughs> in terms of our family. But um, to be honest, no, and I'll tell you why. I think because um, Nick's almost 12 years older than me and what I think happened was during his playing time as a young player at Middlesex, I think he was um, much more in the afterglow of, of Dennis's legacy and um, the comparisons were made uh, with him. You know, Obviously, him playing for Middlesex too was part of that. Um, but I think when I, you know, when I was pl- started playing 24, 25 at Knotts when I started, I think that was that was almost um, that kind of window had moved on, and you know, my my sort of experience and of hearing Dennis was was actually a very nice one. It would just be older members of cricket grounds, you know, coming up to me and saying, "Hello, I saw your grandfather in 1957, and he scored a hundred against Australia," and you know, like. Just very nice stories, you know, and um, and I think that was my um, experience of his legacy, which uh, was really nice and um, very proud for me to to even be in any way affiliated with that, you know. And um, I just enjoy hearing them those those stories and people telling me about um, the way he played the game in a very sort of war torn. England and you know that's just a it's just fills you with a bit of um joy and pride you know um I suppose on a more direct level I think my experience has been uh similar to Nick you know in, in the sense of um you know when people say who is he or you know they'll say oh he's Compo's cousin you know whereas I think Nick would have been oh he's Dennis's grandson if you get what I mean um so that that's been in a nutshell i think my experience i don't think it's weighed down on me in any sense my dad or um any members of my family never never really pushed me to try and become a a cricketer it was never enforced on me um although i kind of in hindsight i kind of would have liked a bit more of a push you know um growing up but um no it was never no one ever forced me to to try and pursue cricket and um it's just something i i sort of fell in love with the game and and wanted to to play the game as long as i could really 
Well, I'm really glad to hear that, Ben, because yeah. we do hear cases of it, not just in cricket, but in sport in general, that sometimes the pressure of expectations when you are the son or daughter of an incredible legend of that sport, it, it can weigh heavy on their shoulders and they almost feel as though they can't carve out their own identity. So I'm yeah. very glad to hear that you haven't felt that. And you mentioned Nick there. I've read a lot of articles that you've done for The Cricketer and various other publications over the course of this summer. Nick seems to have had a very profound and very prominent impact on your cricketing journey. So before we actually yeah. discuss that journey and we talk about your journey in county cricket, just how big of a role has your cousin Nick Compton played in developing the Ben Compton that we see today? Yeah, I think Nick's been um, Nick's been a role model both directly and indirectly. And, um, you know, I think I'm incredibly grateful he's in my corner. You know, I think um, Nick has got a PhD in batting and... Uh, you know, at one time he was he was an accept like one of the best. I know I'm biased, but um, you know, around 2012, 13, when he was churning it up for Somerset, I, you know, he was probably regarded as one of the best top three batters in the country, and that's earned that earned him his England call. Um, you know, and just having sort of quite free access to a guy who's um, we're kind of wired similarly in the in the way of the way we look at batting. Um, really strong focus on good defense technique and um, making sure I've got a strong foundation to bat time, you know, and I think those are um, values we share. Um, so just having quite easy access to that has been, I'm very grateful. Um, you know, and, and more so as, as I've mentioned, he was 12 years older than me. So when I was 12, 14, around that age, he would have been 26, 27, you know, playing county cricket and you know that seemed a very attractive um prospect for me so that almost you know f for me at that time it was almost trying to, to to try and walk in those footsteps at that point you know um and then having to find my own way of doing it well again ben that is excellent here and i'm glad that nick's had such an excellent impact on your yeah. kicking journey and as you said it must be great to have that almost ready-made role model to kind yeah. of bounce ideas off of and, and learn over the years and talking of county cricket then because Nick was a stalwart here in England and Wales wasn't he for Middlesex Somerset went on to play for England as well he was an exceptional cricketer as you mentioned in particular early 2010s one of the best players in the country but in terms of your county cricket story where did that begin how did you first come to the UK in the first place how did that materialize per se well basically I finished my sort of A levels in South Africa and um so I would have been 19, turning 20. And I came over to England for that summer and uh, perhaps a bit naive in terms of how the reality of trying to get into a, a player system would have been. You know, I, those were some really uh, challenging years for me. I'd probably say 21 to 20, uh, 20 to 24 were uh, really difficult for me because... Um, I sort of came with this view and this idea and this dream about trying to play professional cricket in England. And then it just didn't really seem to materialize. And, um, you know, I sort of tried to find ways of try. Uh, I, I played. The interesting thing is I get asked, did you try for a whole bunch of teams? And I don't know where that narrative come from, to be honest, because I played one game for Durham's second team, played one game for Hampshire's second team. And, the rest I trialed for Kent, funnily enough, and that's it. 
So two second team games, and um, and then I played on trial for a year at Kent in back of 2018, early 2019. Um, so those years were really tough, and you know I, I was playing club cricket in London uh, for Wimbledon and uh, Richmond. Um, you know, I did well, scored a lot of runs, but it just never really seemed to transpire into opportunities, you know, higher up. Um, so that was a real challenge about how to, um, you know, how to get in, you know, and, and, you know, the reality of the situation is you're 20, 21, you've come from South Africa, even though your family's inherently English and, um, you know, you say, right, well, I want to, I want to play for Middlesex second team or, or Kent second team. And the reality is Kent and Middlesex have been grooming their players since they were 12 you know so why would they pick some guys just rocked up you know so the reality was i had to be not just as good but quite significantly better to even get a little look in because um you know otherwise why would they do that you know they've they've spent time effort and money on on their own players and fair enough um so it was a very tough period of my life to be honest and you know thankfully i um i studied during that period so i did a politics and history degree and um you know that was my kind of you know backup always believed in in trying to not just being you know I, I wanted to study and i wanted to you know have options outside of cricket should i need them um and then i suppose the real kind of breakthrough started back in 2018 and then 2019 where i tried with kent um did really nicely for them i think i got four 500s in their second team um and then for whatever reason uh there was no real space at kent at that time i think they they had um you know whatever their squad was and um there wasn't really space for me and uh not had actually had a a bit of a torrid season in 2019 and um so i sort of trialed at the back end of 2019 with them and um actually played two games towards the end of the summer for them so that's how it all started and then in that winter i, I joined them up well we will discuss that in just a yeah. second because obviously not big part of your cricketing story it's where you actually started out in county cricket proper yeah. but just to take it back to those i suppose those those club cricket days just for a second right this is going to be again a very profound question but you mentioned almost feeling as though you were in a losing position against those academy yeah. players. So it's a lot more difficult for you as the newcomer coming from South Africa. Even with that that pedigree, I suppose, it wasn't easy mm. to find your way into second 11s or even trials at that yeah. moment. This is going to be a difficult question, Ben, but at any point whatsoever in those years, did you ever feel like walking away from the game? Did that thought ever cross your mind or was it always a case of, I want to go into crickets, I want to realise the dream, and I'm going to do absolutely everything in my capabilities to achieve that. Um, yeah, I mean, it's, it, I think the way to put it was my thinking was, okay, I'm studying, so I've got, a, I'm getting a degree. Now, my thinking was I could be 25 ish, 25, 24, 25, maybe 26, and if it hadn't happened by then, it probably wasn't going to happen. Um, now the way i tried to look at it was had i done everything i possibly could have to you know to try and achieve that 
um, dream, I guess, of getting in. Um, and if I had, then I could go to sleep at night relatively, you know, with a peace of mind. Um, I think where I would have been having late nights and that kind of resentment of myself is if I, if I never really gave it a proper go. Um, so I think that was the way I looked at it. I guess the real frustration was in that time, if I had played a whole series of second team games, you know, for years and hadn't really done well enough to earn myself, um, you know, a contract and then go on to play first team cricket, purely based because I hadn't scored enough runs, which in, in turn would mean like the reality would be I probably wasn't good enough. Um, you know, and that was, that would be fine. You know, that would, I could accept that. Um, and I, as I said, yeah. you could go to sleep with peace of mind, but, uh, the, the struggle was I sort of always felt I could, you know, be, you know, like good enough to at least play, do well in second team cricket and then see how I could do in first team cricket. Um, because I did well for Kent, I scored 400s. Uh, I played a, a one game for Hampshire, like I mentioned, I got 120, then got run out. <laughs> but um, so there was a kind of strange um, kind of storm brewing because I was like, well, I'm, I'm really struggling for opportunities here, but I feel like I'm good enough to play at this level. Um, and that was where, you know, the challenge came about probably erring me on a little bit further than I might have if I didn't do so well, if that makes sense. So, if, you know, like I said, if I played those games, didn't do well, you know, looked at myself in the mirror, cold light of day and said, look, Ben, you've tried, but you're not quite good enough, mate. Like, you know, and then move away with, and that would have been fine, you know? Um, so I guess what erred me on was just the fact that I kind of deep down felt like I could do it. Um, and, you know, like I said, getting that degree was important because it actually did give me some peace of mind and certainly didn't, you know, like, you imagine you're 25 and you sort of, don't really have a job and you you not you don't have a degree and you're sort of trying to make it as a cricketer and you you know all those things can add pressure on you when you're actually going to play cricket you know you're sort of batting for your life a bit and that's never really a position you want to be in um so yeah well i'll tell you what ben those are some incredibly wise words and very prevalent advice for any cricketers out there you do have to have that backup because yeah. as you've rightfully mentioned no matter how old you are or how much cricket you've played. We hear this all the time with, with former cricketers. It's not enough to, to rock up to a job interview and say, I played for Middlesex, or I played for Nottinghamshire, or I played for Warwickshire. It doesn't translate into the real world, unfortunately. Outside of our county cricket bubble, even yeah. though you're probably adored by the fans, in the competitive job market, it doesn't translate. So that is some very sound and sage advice for any aspiring cricketers out there. Of course, focus on the cricket. Chase the dream but always have that backup just in case because you never know how life's going to pan out. Better to have plan B and have it when you need it than not have a plan B and desperately need it at some point in your life. So incredibly wise words there from Mr. Ben Compton and ones that you should listen to if you are a young cricketer. And Ben, fortunately though, I suppose that didn't happen. That wasn't how life panned out. You didn't necessarily need your plan B because Nottinghamshire County Cricket Club came calling guns we have to talk about your time with the East Midlands County, a massive county with plenty of pedigree, plenty of history, one of the founding members of the county championship all the way back in 1890. 
I've got to ask, what was it like to walk out onto that field and represent Nottinghamshire County Cricket Club for the very first time? What were the emotions and feelings on that particular day, given everything that you had been to up until that point? I remember it well, actually. Um, Pete Moore's pulled me aside in the change room, says, Compo, you're going to open the batting and we're going to look to have a bat first tomorrow. Uh, well done, mate. You've earned it. And, um, you know, just enjoy it. And um, I was just really nervous, to be honest. I Not necessarily nervous about the cricket, but more about the um, just being quite uh, unfamiliar with um, the whole establishment at Notts. Like, I didn't even know half the first team players. <laughs> I'd not even met them. Uh, I didn't know Mulaney or Duckett or, um, you know, Joe Clark and, and these boys. Um, so I'd spent most of my time in the, I'd played in the second team, you know, trialing. So, um, you know, occasionally the, the odd guy came down from, in, you know, if he needed a game or was coming back from injury or whatever, I met some of the older boys. Um, but yeah. And, um, obviously, you know, anyone who's played at Trent Bridge can tell you it's a fantastic uh, ground to play at and um, the fans, the members, they all love their cricket there and, you know, it's just, a, it was a fantastic experience for me and um, yeah, actually, I remember the innings well. I think I scored 14 and um, faced about 50 balls, which is actually my goal. You know, I, I didn't really put myself uh, thinking about trying to score 50 or 100, I just literally said, let me let me try and bat for an hour. Let me try and face 50 balls. Um, and I did that. And I think that was that was quite a nice little um, kind of reassurer, if that makes sense. And um, and then I remember Dom Sibley absolutely piling us into the dirt because he got 220 not out and then he got 100 in the second inning. <laughs> so, um, yeah, it was, a, it was a mixed sort of game. But... Um, yeah, it was a, fan a fantastic opportunity, you know, one I'll always be very proud of. And, um, you know, I was, I was very grateful to, to earn that opportunity, you know. I can imagine you were, Ben, and I'll tell you what, I'm very impressed with your recall. Yeah, 14 yeah. in the first yeah. inning, spot up, and then 13 from 50 in the second. And you mentioned that Dom Sibley double century. I'll have, to, I'll have to just bring that up because that did save the Bears' season. That did ultimately save us from, from relegation. He scored 324 runs over the course of that game for Warwickshire County Cricket Club. But it's interesting there that you mentioned that mindset. And we'll talk about the psychology of opening the batting in more detail later on. But I think it's just important to talk about this now, right? Because I do have quite a, a pertinent question. Ben, in your opinion, as an opener, right, given your methodology and your approach to that particular position, are you someone who would rather get 20 from 70 balls or a quick 30 from 45. What do you think is more important as an opener, seeing off that new ball, wearing down the bowlers, or would you yeah. say that it's also important to potentially attack from time to time? If you were to choose between those two approaches, which path would you take? Um, personally, I'd probably say 20 or 70 balls. And the reason being, it's 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 just cricket you know in many respects cricket has changed but the methodology for successful test cricketers is, is there and that's you have a very good pace bowling lineup and you have a strong top four who who score the bulk of the runs and, and that allows number five six seven to come in and play with relative freedom um you know reason being you face 70 balls that probably means you've batted more than an hour uh probably close to lunch um 
you know, and that first session is always the most dangerous time for any batting unit and generally speaking. And, um, you know, the ball get older and, every, you know, it's <laughs> it does get easier once the ball gets older and the pitch dries out a bit, hopefully. And, you know, that's, um, that's not going to change, I don't think. Um, so personally, that's what I'd, I'd be geared towards. Uh, I would say though, sometimes if you are batting on a, on a pitch that's doing everything, then I would probably say play a few shots because, you know, I, it was, it was kind of the debate that a lot of, you know, opening batsmen had in England for the last few years bar this summer, because probably the last four or five years, uh, we had a lot of three day result games, you know, and, um, pitches were very, um, responsive and, you know, you see a lot of sort of 160 plays, 175 plays, 150 type, um, you know, and a lot of the a lot of the opening batters would say, you know, look, I feel like I'm going to get a ball with my name on it. I'd rather get 25 off 20 balls than six or 40. You know, um, I, I can understand it, uh, but personally, for me, I I don't think I'd quite be able to truly buy that. Um, just personally, I'm just wired in the way I am, in the sense where I feel like if I bat those 40 balls that's almost like an investment. You know, I've batted for 40 balls. I've batted for 40 minutes. Um, you know, batting does get easier as the game, as the longer you bat and the longer things go on. Um, so I'd look at it that way. You're biding your time and, and you're hoping that, you know, there might be a change of bowler and he bowls a few loose balls and you get a couple of boundaries away. And now you're 16, 20. And then, you know, that I think does really, that for me would do, um, a good job for the team because uh, it means you're, uh, you know, before five six are protected for the sort of middle session of the game. Um, so that's the way I look at it. That's also the way I look at it, and I suppose it's the older school of thinking, but it does make a lot of sense. And I say that just for openers because it is your job to lay that foundation, right? And obviously, you need to score runs, but at the same time, especially in teams who have got tremendously strong middle orders and. In the modern game, that's plenty of teams. I mean, just yeah. look in county cricket, look in international cricket, look at England, for example. Right, if our openers can see off the first 10, 20 overs, soften up that ball for that middle order, you can cash in. So for me, I always like the gritty, the dogged, the determined openers, you know, the Dom Sibleys of this world, the Dean Elgars, right? I love that style of batting. And yes, from time to time, I completely agree with the, the sentiments when it comes to difficult pitches. Sometimes as an opener, you do need to be more proactive. You need to take the attack because otherwise you're just going to be a sitting duck. But I do like the old school method of thinking. And again, this relates to your family pedigree, I suppose, Ben. But do you think that has actually come as a result of those familial links, given the fact that Nick was a similar style opener and Dennis yeah. as well also could graft out those runs? Yeah, I think uh, it's probably more my dad, to be honest. He... He was quite strict on me as a young boy and said, don't give your wicket away, you know. <laughs> and uh, I remember um, if I did get out in a school game for not many and I actually kind of dreaded going because my dad would be watching and I would I'd be a little bit nervous about going to speak to him because I knew I'd be getting a, a bollocking. Um, not like, not, he was all out of love, and but he just, he was, he would be so disappointed if I played a really silly shot and got out, you know, and um if I got a good ball or, you know, you don't really get good balls when you're 12, but <laughs> you, you feel like you do. Um, 
but um yeah i think it was the it was quite strongly ingrained for me from quite a young age to be honest um because i started opening the batting probably when i was about 12 13 before then i actually batted four and you know you're not really playing proper cricket then so uh as soon as i started playing hardball cricket i was probably opening the batting yeah it's interesting again it's that argument of, of nature versus nurture so potentially a little bit of both there obviously the natural instinct of wanting to graft and grind away those runs but obviously with that's that link to the likes of nick and the likes of your dad patrick it's interesting again i always like to ask that question because everyone's got different thoughts and that's what i like about cricket it's subjective everyone's got different approach to this wonderful game and that's why in my opinion it is the greatest sports on planet earth but ben just heading back to the conversation about knots then before we talk about your time at kenton's that incredible summer that we just witnessed in 2022 what do you say in hindsight was your proudest moments from your time in a knot shirt would it be that debut or does something else top it because at the time as well we haven't really mentioned this, but you're a prolific run scorer in the second 11. So in yeah. 2019, for example, second leading run scorer in the entire tournament, 2021, the leading run scorer in the entire tournament. So what do you say was your highlight from your time with the East Midlands side? Um, my personal highlight was actually uh, a Royal London game, um, not against North Hans, uh at Grantham. And... The reason being, it was the Royal London Cup, and I struggled to break into the four-day team. You know, they had uh, Slater, Hamid, Duckett, Clark, and then Linden. That was their top five. Um, so I'd struggled to break through, and you know, I would I played I think three or four games that year. No, it wasn't four; it was three games that year. Um, never in continuation. It was always kind of filling in you know, for whoever might have been away or had an injury or whatever. Um, so it was tough to build any kind of momentum. And I, I kind of thought to myself, the, the London One Day Cup, if I could get into that team, would be an opportunity for me to play a bulk of games for them um, and then show a little bit more of what I could do because you alluded to the fact I was doing well on the second team, but I wasn't quite finding a way to break into the first team. It was very frustrating, quite a tough time for me. Um, and then that London cup came around and i actually got covid uh i think two nights before the first game and our games were so uh, closely scheduled together which would mean i've missed 95 percent of the games because i got covid and i missed pretty much all of them and i played the last one uh against um north hands and it was bitterly disappointing because i'd be now there's more to this covid story (laughs) i actually ended up getting a a wisdom tooth infection as oh, I had COVID. Uh, so I was, I had COVID. I was stuck in a flat in Nottingham. Uh, I couldn't go see a dentist because I had COVID and I was just in excruciating pain. Um, so it was a pretty grim, grim fortnight. I'll tell you that. And, um, and um, you know, I sort of got through that. And the, our last game was a, a game against North, Northampton and I was playing and I hadn't hit a ball for like two three weeks for that you know or two weeks because I had COVID uh hadn't done any running um I was worried I'd be like (gasps) you know sort of struggling after COVID you know we didn't really um so it was a bit scary and then I played and we played on a very dry turning wicket I think they got 160 or something it was a low scoring game um and I got 73 or 74 
and um that was that was kind of a nice moment for me because I, I really felt like i'd been through the mill for the last two weeks and um <laughs> coming out of it and then and then scoring that um was was a nice moment for me it's probably my highlight at knots um on a playing point of view and unfortunately we didn't manage to qualify that was our last game in the round robin stage but um that would probably be my personal highlight mate um just because it was just such a the weird thing was it was such a ordeal that actually going out and playing a game of cricket was was almost just a load of fun again you know and i really enjoyed the game and that was um that was probably why yeah, I've got to be honest, I wasn't expecting that story. Yeah. I really yeah. wasn't. That does sound like an ordeal. I think that is the, the yeah. best way of of describing it. But fair play for soldiering on. And as you mentioned, mm. getting 70 in that game, a great way to, to wrap up what, what was unfortunately a bit of a disappointing campaign, I suppose, yeah. for not mm. in the 50 over cut. But yeah, fair play, mate. That does sound like a pretty rough time, rough couple of weeks to say in 2021. Don't think I'd I'd wish that upon anyone myself. But aside from the proud moments, then Ben, I suppose, and the highlights. Mm. Again, this is going to be a very difficult question. But obviously, now we're sat here, and I'm talking to you as a Kemp player, not as a Knotts player. Yeah. In hindsight, with the power of retrospect, I suppose. Why do you think things didn't work out at Nottinghamshire? Why do you think that you know that opportunity didn't quite work out the way that you would have hoped? Um. I guess timing's probably uh, um, wasn't really on my side in that respect. I think, um, you know, I'd done really well in second team cricket in 2019. And um, it was quite an interesting turn of events because I joined Knots that winter, 2019 winter, and Jake Livia then left to go to Worcester. So I was like, oh, wow, there's a little, you know, that, you know, this could be it, you know, this could be that spot that opens up for me. And then has joined, uh, has joined from Langs. Um, so immediately I knew there was this like huge sort of like, oh no, like, and as much as I try to fight to earn my opportunity, I think, um, there was a lot of emphasis on trying to reignite his career, you know, and, and I think the world of Hassi is a hell of a nice guy. And um, I lived with him for a little while, actually. And he's just a wonderful human being. Um, but there, in terms of professionally, I think there was a lot of emphasis on trying to reignite his career because he had a slightly bizarre couple of years at Langs where, you know, you watch him bat in the nets, you watch him bat in the games, you can't really explain how his ability warranted the numbers he had in those final two years. Um, it, it just didn't add up, you know, because he's a, he's a very, very nice player and um, he really struggled in those last two years. And so I think Pete Moores wanted to, to reignite that sort of spark that saw him play for England when he was 19 and have a successful debut in India. And, um, you know, I think unfortunately what that meant for me was I was always going to be second fiddle and probably wasn't like looked as a opening batter for Nottinghamshire. I was effectively like a fill-in player, you know. Um, I think that's fair to say, and that's the truth, I reckon. But um, you know, in that time, I had two and a bit years there, effectively, and I could have either sort of sulked about it or tried to become a better cricketer. And I think in those two years, I did become a better cricketer, notably because 
I was always trying to, you know, kind of say like, well, look guys, this is what I can do, you know, um, you know, what do I have to do to try and earn an opportunity? Um, you know, and, and, you know, I, I was leading run scorer in that 2021 second team season. And so it wasn't a case of me not playing well. Um, it was just the case of not really having the, you know, my, whether my face, not, I think my face didn't fit because I got along and have good friends there. I just think um, they weren't really looking for me to play for them. Um, you know, that was a, I was a good opening batter, solid. And, you know, if someone was away doing something, I could come in and do a job. You know, I think that was my, my role there. Um, whereas I think off the bat, uh, Matt Walker, Kent said to me, look, Ben, uh, we've wanted a left-hander for years. We want someone who's solid. We've got a whole bunch of stroke makers. Um, you know, I think, you know, there's no guarantees, mate, but I think there's a role for you here if you, if you take your opportunity. So immediately, like, that's a stark contrast in, um, you know, approach, approaches. And um, so therefore, I sort of felt like, okay, there's no guarantees I'm going to do well. Like, they never are. But you know what? I Can I bat time? Yeah, I think I can. I'm solid. Yeah, I think I am. And, you know, I think I can do that. Um, so that was a very exciting prospect. And... You know, that will probably lead us onto our next topic. But then I went away to Zimbabwe. Um, Dave Hudson set the uh, the whole thing up for me. And he just, he picked me up from the airport at Harare and said, Ben, I can guarantee you two things, mate. You're going to have a good time here in Zim and you're going to play some good cricket. And I did. I loved it because I played every game and met some fabulous people. And I think that was a fantastic um mode of preparation for the season that we've just had it most certainly wasn't ben you've just made my job a hell of a lot easier i was mentioning <laughs> beforehand about openers laying the foundation you've just set up my next question <laughs> quite sensationally there which does of course revolve around your time in zimbabwe with the mountaineers i've yeah. got to ask how integral was that in terms of preparing you for the upcoming season with kent because looking at the stats again it seems to be quite the pattern in your career, I mentioned those impressive second 11 stats earlier, but 479 runs at an average of 79.83, two centuries, two fifties. Also finished not out in four of your 10 innings. And you were the high scorer for the Mountaineers, as well as being the sixth leading run scorer in the entire tournament. Just how important, how pivotal was that time in Harare to putting you on the right track per se, heading into that summer of 2022? Uh, massive, and I think not just on a cricketing front, but um, I actually really enjoyed my time there. I really had fun playing cricket again, you know. And um, a lot of cricketers will tell you being in between teams is probably one of the harder places to be as a cricketer, um, and that's where I was effectively at not. Um, and you know, Dave. You know, he brought me over and he said, Ben, you're going to play every game. You're going to have a good time. You're going to play some good cricket. And so immediately I knew that there were eight or six first-class games and a whole bunch of one-day games that I was going to play it. So immediately that was, like, exciting to me and um, something I never really had before, to be honest. You know, someone saying, look, mate, we're going to give you a proper go. <laughs> and, um, you know, that was huge for me. And... Um, 
and I just enjoyed my time there. I met some really great friends. Um, there are a few English boys out there, and there are going to be quite a lot of English guys out there now this this winter. Um, you know, I spent quite a bit of time with Gubbins. He was out there from Hampshire, and um, you know, just enjoyed playing cricket, and it was a fantastic time to be out there. Hot sun on your back, good wickets. You know, instead of running around an ice track at seven a.m. <laughs> so um, it was an obvious choice, and uh, very grateful for Dave for uh, Harton for setting that up for me and. Um, you know, that, that got me some time in the middle. It also, I hadn't got any runs in first team cricket at that point. You know, um, I think my highest score for knots was 20 and, uh, you know, so I was kind of wondering whether I was good enough to actually play first team cricket. And, um, you know, that time in Zim, I did, I got quite a lot of runs and sort of thought, okay, you know what, like. I haven't done it in England yet, and but I'm just going to trust what I've done here and see where that takes me. Um, and then that led to a really nice start, you know. Um, so I think it was a massive part of that season. Um, I am going next week to go play um, a month of four-day cricket, and then I'll play some more after Christmas. Um, yeah, and we'll, we'll see what transpires, really. Well, of course, Ben, first and foremost, wishing you the best of luck with that. Fingers crossed it goes as well as last year, because if it does, goodness me, imagine what the Kent fans are in store for in 2023 eh? in the county championship. But I'm really, really happy to hear that you had such a good time in Zimbabwe. I do have a soft spot for Zimbabwe and crickets. You could see the passion of the fans in the T20 World Cup as well. Harare Sports Club is a stunning venue as well. I wish that England would play there, to be honest. And... I know that we do actually have some Zimbabwean listeners. So just for their benefit, Ben, what would you say in your opinion was your favourite part of the Zimbabwean cricketing experience, aside from maybe the weather, which does sound quite stunning, I've got to say. You know, uh, the the guys from Pakistan who absolutely love the cricket, I mentioned that earlier in the, in the talk. And uh, I think similarly for Zimbabwe, the the, the guys there, are, are they're so passionate about the cricket. They love their cricket. I was blown away about how passionate they are and how much they love it. And some of the stories some of the guys have, you know, they get a bus at 4 a.m. to be at the ground for seven or eight. You know, it's incredible. And uh, they are all doing it because they want to be a cricketer and they have the dream of being a cricketer. And uh, it's it's really it's it's a bit of a double edged sword because you know you see these huge talent there, mate. Um, there's some very very talented cricketers who come out of there, and uh, the real dampener is just the the governance of Zimbabwean cricket has has obviously just failed them. Um, and you know they've obviously been in turmoil as a country. And, in terms of their economy and their political standpoint. But um, as a cricketing people, they are hugely passionate and they, like you said, the fans are absolutely crazy about it. So uh, definitely have a soft spot for them. And, um, you know, that's why I'm going back because I just love being a part of that um, over there at that time. Good. Uh, again, that's really heartwarming to hear. And obviously heading into the future, I do hope that Zimbabwe can sort things out with their cricket because if they do I mean look how how good they were in the late 90s you yeah. know that team with like Heath Streak for example good win we could keep on going on the Flower Brothers yeah. they've produced some outstanding cricketers over the years and again a cricketing nation with a great heart and great passion so yeah we all hope as cricket fans that one day that does get resolved and 
the Chevrons can come back with a vengeance on the I international this, stage. I think this. Uh, I think it's starting to move in that direction. Hopefully, touch wood. You know, um, you know they had some really good performances. I guess their consistency is the question for them. But you know, they beat Pakistan. Uh, they had a phenomenal. They had a good round robin stage, didn't they? So um, they're definitely. I think they're moving. Um, which is encouraging to see. So I hope that they can continue that trajectory. Fingers crossed. And as long as Sikander Raz is smacking 50s every game and taking wickets left, right and centre, hopefully they will be heading in the right direction. And talking of teams which are heading in the right direction, again, that sets me up quite beautifully for our conversation about Kent County Cricket Club because the summer of 2022, Ben, (laughs) for yourself was quite exceptional wasn't it let's just be completely honest before we get onto the stats and we discuss all of the numbers behind that remarkable summer I just want to know first and foremost what were your initial impressions of Kent County Cricket Club because a bit like Nottinghamshire again another founding member of the county championship a team with immense pedigree haven't won the county championship since 1978 though so it has been a while since they've had Red Bull success in this country but a massive club nonetheless what were your initial impressions of, of the of the White Horse? Um, gosh. Well, I think like, the interesting thing was I actually signed in October and then I went to Zim. So I came back in March, um, not really meeting the entire squad. And um, credit to them, I mean, it's a cliched thing. A lot of cricketers say it, but I was just made to feel very welcome very, very quickly. And I mean that with the utmost sincerity. Um, very warm people, very kind people, and um, I definitely felt like that dressing room was a very open, um, very easy place to be yourself. Um, you know, sometimes when we're new in dressing rooms or different environments, and we sort of just, you know, is a bit of you hold back a bit and you sort of gauge the gauge the room and see how you fit in, but. Um, you know, I was made to feel very welcome and, and very, um, you know, free to, to be myself and to gel with the guys very early on. So that was my first impression and it was very exciting. Um, so in a way, it, it kind of, you know, helped me realise, you know, whether the cricket goes well or not, um, I can at least really enjoy my time with this group of people. Again. Excellent to hear and to know for Kemp fans out there, that will be music to their ears as they're tuning in to today's podcast. And talking of those initial days then with Kent, <laughs> we have to talk about your debut, don't we, Ben? Because that was quite the occasion, wasn't it? For the Spitfires or the White Horses, they're known in, in the championship, I suppose. But what can you recall from that fateful day back in April? Uh, I can remember being the coldest I've ever been on <laughs> There was a howling wind at Essex that morning and uh, I was watching Alistair Cook and Nick Brown get 100. Now, purely, I, I was, you know, I don't think any cricketer minds watching Alistair Cook get 100. You know, like you kind of want him to, you don't want him to get too big a score because you, you're worried he's going to get one of those monster knocks that he's capable of. But purely as a batting fan, as an opening batter, I, it's quite nice to watch, you know, the best, um, you know, the best in the business do it. Um but then, come to our batting performance, uh, it was a good wicket, and um, I was just really grateful to to get in. And um, I got a few balls on my legs to turn away. I got to sixteen or twenty quite quickly, and 
um, you know, it helped me get through that initial nervous period. So, um, yeah, no, things worked quite nicely for me that day and enjoyed batting with uh, Tawanda and, and Jordan. Um, and, yeah, it was just a really nice experience and I enjoyed uh, enjoyed the game very much because I played it there last year and Peter Siddle nicked me off twice. So it was a bit of a grim, uh, you know, it was a nice sort of arc, you know, to, to get some runs at that ground and, um, and I really enjoyed playing there. Excellent here, Ben. And you mentioned those two players there, Jordan Cox and Tawanda Muyeye. Watch out for those guys, Kemp fans. Tremendously, tremendously exciting cricketers. We've had Tawanda on the podcast as well. Lovely fella. And yeah, those two have got very, very high ceilings in the game of cricket. And without sounding too cliche, it does go back to that old adage of start how you mean to, to continue, doesn't it, Ben? Because your first season in the county championship for Kent's was quite staggering. 1,193 runs at an average of 54.22, including four centuries, 650 plus scores. And I'm not sure if you know this stat, but 141 boundaries, which was the second most in Division 1, behind only Keaton, the Jet Jennings. So that's a pretty good achievement and accomplishment for your first season in a Kent shirt. This is going to be a very difficult question because obviously there's the championship and all of those individual highlights. But in addition to that, the club won the, the one-day cup at Trent Bridge, which was there for Steve-O's farewell, which we'll yeah. probably discuss in due course, an outstanding occasion for any fan of, of county cricket. But if you could just choose one game or one particular knock from that most remarkable of seasons, which one would you say was your highlight? If you could just pick one. Um, for me personally, uh, mm-hmm. I probably the sixty something I got at Hampshire towards the end of the year. Um, reason being, I think that was we turned up there, we saw the wicket, and we were like, "Oh my word! Like this is <laughs> we're going to be done in three days, yeah, <laughs> one way or the other." Um, and you know, Hampshire have a very strong bowling on it. If not, probably you know most guys would regard it as probably one of the toughest attacks going around. Um, so I got 60 on day one, um, when, you know, the wickets falling all around and, uh, that was probably, um, one of the more meaningful, meaningful ones for me because I did it against a very good attack on a, frankly, not a great pitch. So, um, you know, that would probably be my personal highlight just, um, on that day. But as a player for a team, I mean, you can't look past that that final I got a duck myself so it wasn't a great day but um you know I think you wouldn't it was a perfect script for for Darren and and his send-off and what a player and what a servant he's been to cricket in England and cricket for Kent and um you know he deserved that you know as much as the team deserved to win you know because we actually had a poor start in that 50 over cup I think we lost three of our first four games um not many people know or think about so we really pulled it back and um you know there was some phenomenal um games in that you know ollie robinson was outstanding and steve was just doing his thing you know and and everyone kind of had their day in the sun you know and everyone kind of won us a game you know potter's hit a four on the last ball against Langs, and uh there were some games in the middle which i did nicely for and do you know what i mean so it was just a wonderful tournament and um, I'm just very grateful it, it fell our way that 
player at Trent Bridge, and that was a very fitting send off for Darren because I don't think Kent had won a 50 over competition in some time, you know. So for him to do that in his final game for the club was pretty special. It, it was indeed, and I, I know from doing the, the weekly shows for the One Day Cup, it was almost this build up to this fairy tale, wasn't it? It was like every single week, Kent are building momentum. They're in the quarterfinals. Mm. You've just won the quarterfinal. You're in the semis. You've won the semi-final. This can't happen, can it? And then it did. And it was a magical day. And <laughs> I was there at Trent Bridge, thankfully. Um, I was yeah. given a, a media pass for the day. I was in the press box, which was quite the experience. But just those Kent fans, all in unison, saying 10 more years, Steve-O. 10 more years. <laughs> I'll never, ever forget that. They were vociferous all day long. And... Honestly, you could just tell it meant the absolute world to him and obviously he got handed the trophy at the end. And it's just one of those moments of the summer which we'll always remember. And I, I sincerely hope that this is not the end for Darren Ian Stevens because he's got more to give. If any of the counties are out there listening, give that man a contract because he deserves it. I don't think I can even picture a world of county crickets without the ghosts in it. But Ben, obviously that would have been a huge highlight, winning silverware as well. In your first season at Kent, not bad, yeah. to be completely honest. You can't really complain about that. But it's interesting, actually, that you mentioned the 60 against Hampshire, which was massive for the team. Obviously, we know how the end result panned out. Kent essentially secured their safety as a result yeah. of that massive win. Also cost Hampshire the, the chance of, of lifting the title by doing so and made things very, very interesting for my county at the bottom yeah. of the table as well, as a result, because we went and lost to Gloucestershire in the same round. But you had those those difficulties. But I've noticed there, the two highlights you mentioned were all about the team. And I really like that. It shows someone who has got an ego. It shows someone who's willing to work for the best of their teammates. But I found it interesting that you didn't mention the knock where you actually became a record breaker. And that was the Lancashire game. Can you take us through that? Because in terms of human feats of endurance, you were on the pitch for every single delivery of yeah. that game. Just give us some more insight into how on earth you pulled that off. Obviously, the result didn't go Kent's way, but in terms of the batting, how on earth did you do that? Um, well, I, just, I suppose it was just breaking it down into little stages, I guess. You know, I think we were, I think they batted first, got a very big score. Um, and then we were really up against it for pretty much the whole game, and um, so it's just trying to just trying to find a way of clawing our way back. You know, it was bit by bit, and um, uh, yeah, I mean, I, I can't really, I don't really have the words. It just sort of happened. You know, I just tried to do the best I could, and um, you know, I realised we had to battle a very long time to try and save the game, and. Um, you know, I found a few partners. I think I had a nice... It was actually a really fond memory for me in the summer. It was, it was my first um, time opening with Zach. I think we had a 100-run partnership in the first innings of that game, and that was really enjoyable. Um, but, yeah, it was, it was a very proud moment for me to look back on that. And um, it was just a bit sad that it never resulted in a in a draw or a win. For, well, we weren't going to win that game, but, you know, a draw. Um, so... You know, it's a bit of a sort of damp squid, but personally, it was obviously um, on top of the the start at Essex. It was a very um, enjoyable start for me at at Kent, and I think it really helped set me up to you know try and and uh, 
you know, my confidence was, was high and, um, you know, felt confident that I could do a good job for them over the summer. <laughs> well, you most certainly did that. Uh, I've already mentioned the stats. I don't need to, to keep on repeating that. But talking of some of those records, I do have to, to bring these up because, again, this is quite staggering. This is your first season for Kent, right? And you were the first ever player in Kent's history to score three centuries in your first three innings for the club, right? With that one two nine against Essex, then the one oh four outs against Lancashire, which lasted for 394 minutes. My kind of innings right there. Absolutely perfect. Taking that time, wearing down the bowlers. Lovely stuff. 289 balls that took. And then 115 from 340 balls, which lasted for 462 minutes. So over the course of that game, you set the record for the longest time spent at the crease in a county championship match, spending 856 minutes at the crease <laughs> and facing 629 balls. I think the, the word Herculean task doesn't even do that justice. I mean, how on earth did you talk to the media after that? You must have been absolutely spent physically. I think everyone who was watching that game would have been asleep, so I think I could get away. <laughs> Who wants to watch me bat for 800 minutes? But um, no, it was obviously, you know, I was very proud uh, personally. And, um, you know, my teammates, uh, I think that was a really um, quite a nice moment for me because I sort of was new and they sort of thought, okay, like this guy's, this guy's all right, you know, and, um, you know, he can, I sort of felt more part of the team is what I'm trying to say after that game. Absolutely. And again, just going back onto that theme of it being an outstanding season, just in retrospect, stats aside as well, Kent's player, player of the year. You won Kent's player of the year as well. And also the batter of the year. So three trophies to your name as well at the end of season awards. I bet that was quite nice. But then I suppose up until this point, when we've spoken about your time at Kent's, we have focused solely on the highlights. But of course, yeah. in the game of cricket, it's not that easy, is it? It would be so brilliant, wouldn't it? Every single week you're scoring centuries and you're in the runs and, you know, you're on top of the world. But cricket's a cruel game. And when you're down in cricket, this game really can kick you. So aside from the highlights and the proud moments from this season, what do you say was one of your tougher moments from your time at uh, Kent so far? Is there anything in particular which really stands out to you from this past yeah, summer? Quite honestly, I think um, it would have been... I think it would have been June and that was a really tough month for me because we had, I was just, I, I think I was exhausted, you know, just um, not physically, but more emotionally. And um, it was, yeah, I think we had a block of eight weeks or seven weeks of cricket, April through May. And then I had a really nice experience playing New Zealand um, in a warm-up match. And then I basically didn't have a huge amount of cricket for you know, three weeks, um, which I kind of used to try and recover. But um, it's such an, a fascinating game. You know, you, you sort of lose your rhythm and uh, you can't really quantify why you're training just as hard. And uh, then I had a few, I got out cheap against Warwickshire on a very, yeah, I'm sure you remember that game, but it was a pretty responsive pitch. And, um, you know, th then I didn't get any runs against, uh, it would have been Lanks afterwards. Um, so, I mean, I understood that, like, you know, as an opening batter, you're going to have a few low scores here and there. Um, but I just think the way 
just batting felt quite hard work. And then I got 34 and 34 against North Hans, which was like a real grind. And we lost. And it was a really, really disappointing loss, though, because we lost at home uh, against North Hans. And that was quite, that was a really tough moment. And I just found that, I found batting quite hard work during that period. Um, and that would definitely be a low for me just because it's something I can use to try and uh, prepare me for next season. You know, come rain or sunshine, I think uh, there are lessons to be learned there about trying to, you know, manage yourself because this season is very long and um, there are waves, you know, you go up and down throughout the season. And um, I definitely can attest to that because I certainly struggled in that month. But the, the Royal London Cup came at the perfect time for me. Um, it was just a new block of cricket, uh, fresh kind of start, and 50 over cricket. You, you know, in a way, it's you know, guys aren't really trying to get you out as much. So you know, you almost say to yourself, "We'll just get through the first few overs." You know, you probably got you know Joey Everson or Ollie Robinson on the other end who are very attacking, and and I can kind of just find my feet a little bit. And then if I bat 35, 40 overs it means our team is probably going to get 300, you know, and everyone can bat around me and that kind of thing. So, um, you know, that came at the perfect time and that was a breath of fresh air. Um, but definitely some low points. Yeah, I think that June period was very tough for me. I was I was exhausted. And, um, you know, as much as you try to, to sort of find a, a way, the tricky thing was the things that were working for me, you know, were all of a sudden not working. Um and I was sort of scratching my head and thinking, why, you know, what's different? You know, and I was looking for little technical things and there was nothing there. And it's just, um, you know, that's where the game becomes mental and opening the batting is is very tough. And your margin of error is smaller, you know, and, um, you know, half a mistake opening the batting does cost you because everyone's around the bat, everyone's catching. Um, you know, so it was, it was a tricky period for me. Well, Ben, I'm, I'm very appreciative of the fact that you've you've been so open about that because yeah. I did want to talk about the psychological aspects of the game, in particular opening the batting, because it is the most difficult place to bat. When you think of, of that position, everything is against you, isn't it, to be honest? In terms yeah. of you've got fresh bowlers, you've got a new ball, the atmospheric conditions might be against you, fresh pitch. Absolutely everything can be against you as an opener. And, you know, we, we've spoken about Sir Alistair Cook in this podcast at, at quite some length, actually. Right, because he is regarded as one of the best openers of all time, if not the best, in many people's opinions. But I did some research, right, some pretty lengthy research, and I had a look at Sir Alistair Cook's entire career. So he's played in 593 total first-class innings. He scored 73 centuries and 119 50-plus scores. So the greatest opener of all time, that he, he averages in first-class cricket one century every eight innings. So that's four complete matches. In addition to that, in test cricket, over the course of 291 innings, he scored 33 test centuries. That's a century every 8.8 innings. So the fifth leading test run scorer of all time, England's all-time leading run scorer in that format, has only cashed in big once every eight innings. And that relates to my next question, because how on earth do you as an opener deal with the psychological pressures associated with that position given the fact that everything's against you given the fact that the majority of the time you are destined to fail no matter what you do because there are so many things out of your control that you cannot help 
and that are playing against you, you're going to get low scores. And then in addition to that, as if that wasn't enough, you've also got the expectations of the fans, which, as we know from supporting England for years, can also get on your back pretty quickly. So, Ben, how on earth do you deal with all of those pressures and maintain that level-headedness and that even keel when it comes to the art of opening? I guess I I can only speak for myself, um, but I'd certainly try and... um, You've got to want to. You've got to want to open the batting. You know, I don't think you'll find anyone who was, you know, over the. You know, you won't find an Alistair Cook or a Strauss or a Matthew Hayden or a Justin Lang or a Graham Smith or a Gary Kirsten or a Verendas Tehag or whoever. You know, all these great, all these great opening batsmen who didn't want to open the batting. Um, you've got to want to do it, I think. And um, I've always enjoyed opening. Um, I also enjoy batting three, but opening is where um, you know the role for me is. And um, you know, if you if you pile all those things, you sort of think, oh well, what's the bloody point, you know? But um, you know, sometimes you know, sometimes there are things that are in your favour. You know, if you uh, you do have a hard ball, which means that the ball does go off the bat quicker um you have more attacking fields you know you you can twist the narrative that you i think you have to otherwise you're just walking in like a sitting duck you know and if you know that if a guy bowls in the wrong place you clip him it's going to go for four or you drive him through cover it's going to go for four um and it's also a very valued position in the sense where if you if you do do nicely or do well and you put the team in a good position they let you know you know your teammates let you know and they appreciate that and um you know, I think that's that's reward. You know, if you're scoring runs, opening the batting, you're going to earn the respect of your teammates. Um, you know, and that goes a long way. Um, so I guess you've got to you've got to spin the narrative, and you've got to definitely want to do it um, because it is tough and it is relentless, and the margins are smaller. Um, but you know, it's a job that needs to be done. So you might as well try and do it as well as you can. Well, exactly. That is the attitude that you do need to go into it with. But I just think that it is tremendously difficult. And I think at times that even people like myself, I can be critical of openers at times. And I think we do need to just take that step back and realise that it is the hardest place to bat in cricket. I mean, when you you look at that from Alistair Cook, that surprised me, to be honest. Once every eight innings, that he'd score a century. And that is (laughs) Sir Alistair Cook, one of the greatest to ever do it. So I think that should also relate a little bit to the England discussion when we are looking at openers in particular newer openers mm. let's just cut them a little bit more slack maybe in the future that's all I'll say but no I like that and it is a good attitude to have and as an opener the other thing as well they are the most rewarding centuries aren't they I suppose when you carry a bat yeah. throughout an entire innings there's nothing better than that no it's always a special feeling when you get 100 you know and, and if you're doing opening the batting it's it means you've had to overcome some more than more often than not challenging conditions you know the new ball or maybe a bit of spin later on or a sort of tough middle session after lunch or whatever it may be you know um but uh yeah i mean it's it, look there's always going to be a need for opening batsmen so you've got to it is tough but, but like i said people um people respect you if you do it well and um you know someone's got to do it <laughs> <laughs> well they do exactly that is, again, the attitude to, to have. And I did just bring up England. And I suppose that relates quite excellently to our concluding segment for today's yeah. podcast, Ben, which is, of course, the future. Now, I'm well aware that 
you're not going to concern yourself with you know the whole England hype and all this that the other because you've got to maintain grounded in the moment that's completely understandable but in terms of your aspirations in the game of cricket I'm guessing that playing for England is up there as it is for any professional cricketer it is the dream but on a wider scale as well from both an individual and I suppose a, a team perspective as well what would you like to achieve with Kent and what would you like to achieve from an individual perspective heading into the summer of 2023 and the years beyond? To be perfectly honest with you, I've not really thought about what I'd like to achieve. I think, um, I know it's a bit boring, so you're going to forgive me, but I'd literally just, my focus for the next four months is literally to just try and be um, as robust and as as ready as I can be so that when the first game starts, I'm as in as good nick as possible. And my focus literally doesn't extend beyond that. Uh, you know, I think if the little schoolboy in me, to answer the other part of your question, absolutely. You know, I've had two members of my family play for England and it would be an absolute dream come true to play for England. Um, and, you know, and beyond that, who knows? But uh, it's about, I've got to be, you know, I'm quite disciplined in trying to just make sure that, because that can just be a fairy tale. If I start terribly next year and don't get a run, then the window is gone, you know, or it's not going to happen. So I think the, the way I give myself that opportunity is just be by being very, um, you know, physically ready, mentally ready, emotionally re- as ready as I can be. Um, and just, I guess, in with regards to Kent's, um, very good question. I just want to be a reliable, good player for them. It's that simple. Um, you know, I just want to be a good player and I want to be respected by my teammates and I want to do as good a job as I can for them because I really enjoyed playing for them. Uh, I really enjoyed playing at Canterbury and, um, you know, just to be a, a reliable opening batter for them. Well, just picking up on that point, actually, because we've spoken mostly about County Championship and the Royal London One Day Cup, did read an article the other day which suggested a, a potential venture into T20 cricket. Is that also something on the horizon heading into the future? Yeah, I wasn't. I was a little bit annoyed by that because I didn't. There was a headline that sort of wasn't quite reflective of my thing. But um, <laughs> uh, no, basically, I was asked. You know, do you just see yourself as a fifty-over or four-day cricketer? And I said, no. I think you know, if you asked me to hit the ball over there for six, I could do it. But um, I'm not as good as as some of the other guys who are just. Um, you know, you see it all up, all over in these T20 leagues and. Um, you know, I was just chatting to Nick, funnily enough, he's just been in this Legends League in India, which is this sort of retired cricketers um, thing. And he just says, you know, these these boys, Yusuf Patan and all these characters who, you bowl the ball there, it goes for six. There's not even two, there's not even a second thought about it, you know. Um, so it's an extraordinary skill in itself. But linking it back to me, I think... Um, yeah, I'd love to. I'd love to develop my game. You know, who wouldn't want to play all three formats? Um, but you know, I don't want to. I don't want to play T Twenty cricket if it's going to detriment my ability to play well in four day cricket. You know, I think if we're looking at a uh, trajectory, um, you know, I think there's a market. There's definitely an opportunity, and there is for any top three batter in England. You know, if you that to you know that like there's not it's not 
um, it's an exciting time to be a top three batter because you know that if there is success, there's there might be an opportunity. Um, you know, and um, so I think my focus is is on that. But um, you know, over the years, I'm going to con- continue developing my game, of course. And that's completely understandable. You know, you shouldn't be burning any bridges, but I completely understand the point of, of focusing mostly on those two formats because just looking at, at the stats so far, I know this has been a very stats-heavy episode, but averaging 50.57 in first-class crickets, 45.11 in this day. Of course, you don't want to, to focus on T20 at the cost of those two formats. So now I completely understand that, Ben, and obviously myself and everybody involved with the Counts Cricket Podcast. Wishing yourself and Kent nothing but the very best of luck heading into the summer of 2023 and beyond. I've got to say, I'm tremendously, tremendously proud of your efforts this season, Ben, because I've been watching in second 11 cricket and it's good to see someone take that next step up, almost translate that form and translate those runs into first 11 runs. And now all of a sudden, I know you're not going to mention it too much, but there is that England conversation as well. So, Honestly, mate, just wishing yourself and the Spitfires the best heading into summer of 2023 and beyond. And talking of Kent County Cricket Club, actually, just one final question that we were sent in from our listeners. This comes from Lewis Browning, who is a journalist down in Kent. It's a pretty interesting question, this actually, Ben, but he asks, uh, will you be the best man at my wedding, Ben Compton? Will I be the best man? Uh... If he's got a nice buffet and some good red wine, I'll think about it. (laughs) (laughs) Well, there you go, Lewis. There's your answer. So buffet, red wine, we'll see what happens. But honestly, Ben, I think that is a lovely place to wrap up what has been an immensely enthralling episode of the Cows Cricket Podcast. I'm just looking at the clock now. An hour and 20 minutes have absolutely flown by. I feel like we could have chatted for days, to be honest, but I don't want to eat into your day too much, mate. So... We'll end the podcast here, but before we say our final goodbyes for the episode, do you have anything to plug or promote? Any social media channels, websites, businesses, anything like that? Oh, no, no, I'm not particularly. I'm the most boring follow you'll ever find, and there are plenty of better people to follow than me, so go follow them because I'm terrible. (laughs) (laughs) All right, fair enough, Ben. It is is tradition, though. We we do leave at least one social media handle in the podcast description below so we'll probably leave the the ones to the instagram to be honest so listeners if you want to go follow ben please feel free to do so quality bloke quality cricketer give him a follow get those instagram numbers up i say but <laughs> that is essentially it from us to here at the counter cricket podcast for today's episode to each and every single one of you wonderful listeners out there thank you very much for tuning in and as always guys we'll see you on the next one